Hello and welcome to another episode of the e-commerce playbook podcast. I'm Andrew Ferris, the CEO of 4x400. And uh, I am so excited about what's happening this week. It is a long anticipated episode. It's going to be a longer one today than our usual thing. And uh, as part of that, I'm also going to have a special guest, a really, really tough get on the podcast, but he showed up. It's going to be awesome. And that's because this week we are talking about the newest brand acquired in the 4x400 portfolio. It is closed. It's done. uh, And we're going to talk about it on this episode. So here we go. All right. As promised, huge, huge guest on the show this week. We have labored. I mean, this has really been the whole point of the podcast has been to get this guest on. Uh, It's all a big excuse to do that. No, uh, today uh, on the podcast, talking with my great friend and uh, partner, Taylor Holiday. Taylor, hello. Yeah, Andrew, I'm only a tough get because you can't yell at me from upstairs anymore. That's the only reason it's difficult is yeah. that we're we're not in the same building anymore. COVID has ruined the the ability for us to have yelling. You know what's funny about that about that comment is that earlier today, you and I were on the phone or whatever, and um, my wife was in the other room, and she I had my headphones on, so she could only hear one part of the conversation. And then afterwards, she's like, "Oh, were you talking to Taylor?" And it was because I was yeah. like, I was yelling. I had a certain tone or something. <laughs> So easy to tell. But yeah, our primary form of communication is yelling upstairs to downstairs. So this will be a, we'll see if we can moderate our tones a little for the audience. Yeah. Well, so, so some of you, I think most of you probably know Taylor, but uh, in, in case you don't, um, Taylor is the managing partner of Dream Labs and of uh, Common Thread Collective. Uh, and and um, and so that's obviously the, the holding company that owns and operates 4x400. So um, so Taylor has been variously my boss and mentor along the way. And now um, he runs the agency side of the business and I run our brand holding company side of the business. Um, but we're on together today um, to talk about really big news in our in our ecosystem of of companies. And uh, that is the acquisition of the newest brand. We've been talking along this whole time about 4x400 owning three brands. We now own four. Uh, and so we the we can uh, pull back the curtain here finally. The fourth brand now in our portfolio is called 31 Bits. Uh, that's the number 31. Yeah, Taylor's clapping. That's great. Um, and it is, it's, it's, it is worthy of clapping. We're, we're like incredibly excited about this. We've been working um, with the ladies who founded 31 Bits for quite some time. Um, I think it's cool. It's our second female founded brand out of our four, which is really fun. And, uh, and so, and we, we just think that we can be a great partner to this brand. And so we're, we're really pumped to get it started. So, um, Taylor, do you, I think that my background with 31 bits actually goes really far back. Um, uh, really before you and I had even reconnected in life, I think, but, and I can tell that story in a little bit, but, um, you, I think started the conversation, with Jesse Alexander, one of the founders and the former CEO of 31 Bits. Um, you want to talk about sort of how, maybe give a little overview of what 31 Bits is and um, and how they showed up. It's www, It's 31bits.com. So if, if you're great, listening along, yeah, go check it out. Um, but, yeah, uh, it's, I mean, so we're both from the Southern California area, Orange County area, and 31 Bits is sort of a, a, a little bit of a legendary brand in this area. They were one of the very first companies to get involved in sort of the ethically sourced um, production of product alongside another local brand called Crochet Kids. They're, they were sort of very much intertwined and mingled with the sort of the church communities around here and sort of had a reputation as these, one of the first really like the young entrepreneurs who went out and started a brand. And I remember um, sort of hearing stories. They were always sort of speaking and sharing what they were doing because um, 
they had, it was just such a novel idea. Like it wasn't like it was is now where everybody has a brand or a t-shirt company. That wasn't the case when, when these women started. And I remember hearing their story for many, many years. Um, and then it sort of like trailed off as we all went off our separate ways and grew up. And then one day I get an email from Jesse Alexander and not even realizing at the time um, who she was or what she had started about a creative strategist position at CTC. And she, I was like, Hey, this is so good to meet you. You know, she gave me a little bit of context for her background and I was like, wow, like what's going on with 31 bits? Like, why are you applying for this job? Why don't you come in and we'll chat? And Jesse came into the building and, you know, Andrew, you and I joke a lot about sort of the serendipitous or divine or however you want to paint it nature of a lot of the interactions that we come across, man, it's all just so relational is in our story. And this was just another great example of Jesse walked into the building and I knew, and I told her this from the second we had a conversation, I was like, there is something for us here. That's going to be really cool. That's uh, so, okay. So let's actually talk about that a little bit more. So 31 bits sells jewelry. Um, uh, yeah, mostly. Sorry, I didn't yeah we didn't there. actually say that. So, um, ethically, um, made jewelry and I, and was founded in 2009 by these women when they were college yeah. students at Vanguard university, also right down the road here. Um, and, uh, and I'll let you, I'll let you, um, go read their about page. We're also going to have Jesse and Callie, uh, another one of the founders, uh, later on the show this week. So kind of hear this from their side, uh, af after I'm going to give you kind of mine and Taylor's side, um, as to why we were excited about this opportunity. Um, so, so I'll leave kind of some of that, the founding story out and we'll leave that for that episode. But right now it's, uh, the brand is, is mostly has been built around, um, around ethically made jewelry um and uh, and that started with like paper beads and that sort of thing when that was uh, sort of more on trend in the early uh, 2010s and um and and then has now included more metal jewelry and has expanded into home goods and some things like that we'll kind of talk about all that stuff in a little bit but on the on the kind of founding story here's the really other crazy part of that is well before i was even in digital marketing <laughs> i was in a, like a little local indie rock band in orange county called the devious means and we um, I've been telling Corey he should find an old Devious Means song to put for the bumper music for this just because it'd be funny. Yeah, no um, kidding. So um, You're just trying to get a little extra royalties on that. I, I know, uh, always are, plotting. There are zero royalties on the Devious <laughs> Means, my friend. When I say local band, I mean local band. Um, so, um, so yeah, anyway, and we, we played shows in their warehouse. And at that time, it was just like a really fun thing that these girls had started this brand. It's exactly like you said. It's like, I didn't know anybody else who, who had a brand. Who Nobody, brand. yeah. And they were and they were big in church circles because they were bringing. I, I know for them it was a matter of kind of the core drivers of their lives leading into this idea of like could we create a business that employed women across the world. Um, so again, I'll, I'll let Jesse and Callie talk more about that side of things. Um, but it was just a big thing. I mean, it was sort of the heyday of Tom's and yeah. uh, and all that. And it was just this whole idea of like could we actually create global business that that mattered. So so that that is actually the first part of. Um, something that I think we like about this brand. And what I want to do in this episode, Taylor, is just for you and I to talk about sort of um, quant even quantitatively, objectively, like what is it yep. that gets us excited about why we think we are a great partner for this brand and why we think we can take this brand to, yep. to new places. So, so let me give you a little bit of background on kind of the revenue story for, for 31 bits. They, um, they had uh, an, a pretty big peak. And, and I, if I'm not mistaken, actually, I, have, I don't remember going this far back, but they had done, uh, over a million dollars a couple years um, earlier in that. They had gotten a lot of press and PR um, around the story. Again, like I said, they were early to this sort of thing. Um, and uh, and so that had, they had kind of had a really big high. And um, and then in the last couple years, that has slowed down a little bit. So still really impressive. Um, 
2019 did um, about 330 grand on their website. Um, and that's a really impressive number, especially because they did that with basically no paid acquisition. And um, that's a really key thing that I think Taylor, you and I would both look for in a, in a partner as a, as a, as a, uh, brands kind of plateaued. Feels like they they've been at it for a while. You know, I said they started in two thousand nine, um, and they hit big heights. And they maybe um, even if they didn't hit big heights, they sort of plateaued their growth and just didn't know how to take their growth to the next level. Like that's all you and I have thought about for the last five years, pretty much. And it's just like growing brands online, D to C, and um, and so we see that and we go like, okay, that's there. That immediately is a major like let's explore this kind of thing for us because we think we have an engine of people who can take all the like tactics that we know really well and bring it to a brand that has a really authentic story and a great product and just sort of supercharge it. So, um, so there had been some definite decline in the revenue still like, again, a really healthy number. Um, but, um, but maybe not that. And, and like you said, Jesse was coming to you initially with sort of this, um, maybe time to go look for something else. You start a brand in 2009. That is, that's a long, hard road. And, and I think um, I'll speak for myself here, but I, I think this is true of you as well. I, I hear that story and I know from operating brands how much work that is, how difficult yeah. it is to get a brand there, especially without paid growth being part of what you're doing. Like it is really impressive. And these girls, again, just like did it straight out of college. It is really, really impressive to to get to that kind of stage of things. And it's really tiring. Um, and so I, it's not surprising to me that there's kind of a stage here where they go, you know what, maybe maybe for the next stage of this thing, we, we can bring on some partners who can help bring some energy into this in a new way. So um, so we kind of see that and say like, okay, we we are that partner. We, we can do this um, and take it to the next level. Yeah. So exactly what you said, when we think about the kinds of businesses that we look for, the first one is everything we've just talked about, about an authentic founder story. If you look across four by 400s portfolio and you get to know the story behind each of the brands that exists. And it's because one of the things that we just believe is that the truth matters um, and that the story and heritage behind why the product exists actually is really critically important. And it's something we can't manufacture as marketers. There's a lot of things we can create, but it's it's not that. And this is like as true of a story as there is. And then the second thing that you mentioned is, can what we do really well be helpful for this business? If someone comes to us and they have absolutely squeezed every drop out of a Facebook ad account and we look through it and they are tactically been effective and they've done all these things digitally that we would do. And they say, well, maybe you guys could do it better. Uh, we would probably say, hey, I don't know that this is the right play for us. But when we see somebody come to us and that the way that they have built the brand is by organically building a community around the product that has just been blood, sweat, and tears of boots on the ground, swap meets, local markets, every imaginable way to build a 100,000 follower Instagram account and has never touched paid acquisition. Well, suddenly then I think we can be really, really helpful for a business like that. Now then you start to layer on all the things we care about, value to weight ratio, margin, et cetera. And what very quickly sort of materializes is a really big opportunity in our eyes. Talk about that because I, I think um, what this podcast could devolve into is you and I sort of just talking about like um, this one brand and how we're going to make it great, but the, or not make it great. It already is actually a great brand. I, I just, but take it to the next level. Um, I actually think the kind of interesting thing for our audience um, on this podcast is more to, is more to kind of get into some of those things beyond authentic founder story. But like 
from a broader perspective of what we're looking at in a business, um, how do we evaluate a business that's sort of ripe for us to um, to add to it and that we think can actually go to the kind of heights that we would like to take it to? Um, so you, you mentioned, for example, very quickly, value to weight ratio. Um, yep. So let's let's talk about a little bit about that. That kind of begins to get at the question of, of gross margin. Um, yep. And so maybe you can just talk a little more about value to weight ratio, maybe define that for people if they haven't used that terminology before and, and then go from there. Yeah, so value to weight ratio is just simply your average order value divided by the cost to ship it. So if you think about a great uh, value to weight ratio would be something like that's really expensive and really inexpensive to ship. So jewelry is a perfect example of this where it's you're going to be able to put it inside of an envelope and you can have a really high AOV. FC Goods is another great example of this where we have a high AOV wallet that's really small and it's going to cost $3.99 or whatever it is from USPS to ship it. Um, so it's the AOV against the shipping cost is sort of that that sort of ratio that you're looking at. Uh, you know, there's lots of businesses where this can be much more challenging. You know, we work with a business uh, called Igloo Coolers that sells really expensive or not that expensive giant coolers. That's a really challenging value to weight ratio, but it's a critically important metric um, because it will really quickly eat at the margin of the product if you have to pay a lot to ship it when customers aren't looking to spend a bunch of mo- extra money on shipping. Yeah, Slick Products is the classic example of this too. Like, we've talked about a lot. And, and I mean, this is just an honest challenge that we've had is like not i mean wash solutions are not expensive to 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 manufacture they're not they're actually pretty cheap to manufacture the problem is they're really expensive to ship so that's been like a huge challenge to ship heavy bottles of stuff and it's and it's created all kinds of issues for us for how we kind of approach that business so yeah jewelry extreme opposite as it turns out jewelry is also high margin at the pure gross margin level so exactly what what that really allows for is if if you're planning on building on paid acquisition and, and this is i think like the place where a lot of businesses are doomed from the start. I know you and I have talked yep. with uh, one entrepreneur who spent a while on where he completely rebuilt the way that he manufactured his product um, because he was getting like a two and a half to one on Facebook and uh, breaking even, basically. Um, like yep. essentially, and, and the reality is, there's a few years ago where it didn't really matter that much, like what your gross margin was right. because Facebook was underpriced arbitrage. It's a money machine. But now what margin, and now you still make more money if you have a great gross margin, of course, but, but now what Facebook represents is, is a much more challenging ecosystem to buy ads in um, COVID notwithstanding. And, uh, and so then there just becomes this, when you have higher gross margin, what that allows you to do is basically acquire customers with more margin built in uh, because you're spending less of, uh, or because at the same percentage of ad spend, you make more money. And that's obvious in one respect, but I promise you there are people listening to this right now who think they have a problem with Facebook ads in their business, but really they have a gross margin problem. Here's the secret for four by 400. Like, uh, like behind the scenes, dirty secret is that I truly believe that Andrew and team, I would put them up against any Facebook advertising group in the world. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart, obviously take it with a grain of salt. I'm fairly, or fairly biased on this issue. And they run most of their ad accounts somewhere between a 1.8 and a 2.2 ROAS. Like the answer to the way that we built the system to win this game is not about massive efficiency from a ROAS standpoint in the ad account. That's not the model. Instead, what we have is because we run an agency where we spend tons and tons of money, we know that a 50th percentile outcome, so about about an average outcome across our client portfolio is right around a 1.9 or two to one. So that's like an average brand with spend on Facebook around $50,000. So we think to ourselves, our ability to produce 
produce an average outcome for a brand, that's a fairly predictive indicator. We think that there's a good chance that we could create that. So if we think that we can guarantee sort of that result at volume, which we really believe is the magic of Facebook, it's more about volume than efficiency in my mind, um, then what else needs to be true about the business in order to win based on that result? And that's when you start to get to something like gross margin, is that we believe that if we can get a, what the metric I like to call it is cost of delivery, which is actual production all the way to the cost to put it on the, to the customer's doorstep. If we can get that from sub 30% really is ideal. That's like best case scenario, right around 25%. Then we can really win even if we're spending 50% on acquisition because the other magic of 4x400 is the dis- dispersed OPEX, is that we can take our OPEX number and run it really, really low because it's shared across multiple streams of revenue. So yeah, that's totally right and um, really helpful. And I do want to just kind of pause there and make a tactical note. If you are not looking closely at every element of the cost that it takes, like Taylor said, to get it from your manufacturer to somebody's door, which means your shipping costs, your packaging costs, um, your all everything, transaction, your fee, transaction yeah. fees. I'm it's starting. It's something I'm starting to think a little bit more about. Like, can we get that down a little bit? Like, how much you're paying yep. Shopify? Like, are should you be on Plus or not? Like, all of those. There's a million of those things, and certainly shipping is one of them. Um, all kinds of carriers. You can negotiate your carrier rates, etc. Like, you need to do that. It's it really matters. Save pennies everywhere, and it adds up to real money. Um, so we've talked about authentic founder story. Check. Um, that's true. By the way, one other thing is we do almost all of our deals. Um, so far, all of them, um, we don't take hundred percent of the company. So these founders are going to be maintain some equity. They will be involved in various ways. We'll talk more about that in the future. Um, and, uh, and, and so like part of the thing for me, honestly, is the guy who's going to work with these people for a long time and hopefully make a lot of money in this business, right? If it goes well, like re- that's the reality. If it goes well, it'll create a lot of value. I want partners that I want to win for. And I tell you what, like there are a few people who I want to win for more than these ladies, like who literally set out yeah, to go incredible. change. They just wanted to go like do something really good in the world. So, so authentic founder story, partners I want to win for great gross margin. And then you mentioned OPEX. So, um, yes. talk, talk more about, talk more about OPEX and maybe how we can bring some, some help to that and how, how our model works really well. Yeah. So if you think about OPEX, traditionally the main primary cost there is people, right? Is your staff. It's also things like office and equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, you, some of you may have seen, I've published this sort of general accounting philosophy that we use for e-com called four quarter accounting. And basically what it does is it gives you a lens to look at e- each portion of the business and figure out where the opportunity is. So if you divide it into four parts, CAC, customer acquisition cost, COD, that cost of delivery we just talked about, and then the third quarter being OPEX, so everything in the sort of the accounting term below the line, as they'll say in accounting, everything that goes into operationally running the business. Um, And then that last quarter leftovers, profit. So if you have 25% in each of those categories, then you can get to a 25% net profit, which would be a fantastic result in the e-commerce world. I guarantee you not many of you are running your e-commerce business at 25%. So here's how 4x400 thinks about this, is that we want to be aggressive on the CAC side. So we're actually running most of our CAC numbers closer to 33%, closer to a three to one, what we would call MER, marketing efficiency rating, which is just total sales divided by total ad spend. 
So that blended row ass, if, if that's a, yeah, if blended that's row ass right. is another term people we, use. We've talked about that on the podcast before too. I know uh, Taylor, you listen to every episode all the way through, so I know you know that. Yeah, exactly. But, um, you're yeah, a huge fan, I know. sorry for clarifying what you guys already knew. That's that's just <laughs> no, my lack no, of knowledge. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Right. So if we're at thirty three percent on CAC, we just said we want to target thirty percent cost of delivery. So then we've got another about thirty seven percent left over in margin. Well, the secret for four by four hundred is we run on really tiny opex applied to any individual business because. Bur- Andrew and his team run four brands. They have four streams of revenue that they can disperse their overhead against. And the beautiful thing about um, when we looked at 31 bits is they came back to us and their four quarter accounting broke down like this, 5% CAC, 30% cost of delivery, 52% OPEX. Well, if there's any place where we can create savings inside of a business, it's Andrew and his team through OPEX. They the, mo- are the, moment we, the moment we acquire it, right? Like as yes. soon as we get that, it's that has changed. That's the beauty of it too. Is it's like as soon as it comes into our ecosystem, OPEX changes completely. Right, because you know what we don't have? We already have an office. We don't need to add any people. We can literally run the entire business. We'll maybe hire one more person. Um, but you look through this. I'm looking at the P&L right now. You pull out professional services fee, $30,000, marketing agency, $84,000, like all of these elements that are inside of this PL that just instantly disappear. So right away, we're creating instant profitability by the system that we already have established at four by 400. And then you look at it and I go 5% CAC. So they're driving all this revenue by spent by spending basically no ad dollars. So they've got organic demand coming from somewhere. That's exciting. Um, and they've got opportunities for instant savings, and I can apply the best Facebook ad team in the world to an area that's completely untouched. That's a recipe for a huge opportunity. I mean, yeah, we, that's, that's uh, I think, the, a lot of the core of what kind of makes us really, really excited about this business. We think there's some other stuff that we can help do pretty well in terms of just kind of bringing their brand story more to the foreground in certain spots. Um, I think... Um, there's some elements here on cleaning up the SKU set. I think one of the things that I, I see in the background of this is is just sort of this um, attempt to kind of branch out to grow the business and to um, create more value inside the customers you have, inside the um, owned assets you have, like email lists and social accounts and those sorts of things. Um, and we um, and so there's sort of an expansion of SKUs to try to create that and even create value in the world with the, the manufacturing story. It's important. Um, so I think we'll probably eliminate a lot of that. We've told those, yeah. those ladies that it's not news to them. Um, they totally agree with that. Um, again, applaud the effort. It's not it makes sense to me how you got there. We've played with this in other runs of our businesses. Um, but but we think there's a, a real opportunity to kind of bring down, narrow the focus back on the core of the business, which is always jewelry. Um and, and then that may also, I think, we think maybe help the conversion rate on site, because if you can just sort of uh, eliminate some tyranny of choice, get rid of some options uh, of lower selling SKUs, then maybe you can um, direct more focus towards your best products, your highest uh, value products and your highest selling products. So so um, that's another thing that we look at as sort of something we can clean up fairly easily. Um, and that's another huge thing for us. We don't want to spend tons and tons of time having to clean up lots of stuff, um, you know, solidifying a tech stack, those sorts of things, I think are also yep. areas where having done this a few times now with different brands, we know what apps we like, we know 
Uh, a developer can go clean up code from old apps that are weighing down your site. All those kinds of little things that can kind of be an integration process, basics, um, as well as better inventory planning and those sorts of things. So, um, so yeah. So I, I think there's just a lot here that we're excited about. At the core of it, we we just see a business that is is uh, is ripe to kind of take its next step um, in a really whole new way, and we're super excited about it. So, Zaya, did I miss anything that that we're excited about with the business? Well, that's core to us. No, I, th- I think I think what you did too is you started to lay out some of the challenges because there's no doubt it's not without challenges. So like right now I'm looking in our LTV tool and one of the big limitations is we, we've talked about before I say we've talked about before as if I've been here before. So I believe in what we call a 30 and 100 principle, um, in terms of LTV, where we like to see a business increase in lifetime value, 30% within 60 days and a hundred percent within a year that really shows that there's ongoing engagement and demand with the business. Um, they definitely don't have that right now. They're at about, 8% within 60 days and only about 30% within a year. So there's definitely opportunity to start to build a connection for why a customer should come back and continue to shop with us and add to their collection. And a lot of that happens. um, It's very common when you see uh, collections being driven in one-off collaborations with influencers and things like that, what they've done in the past where somebody's probably showing up because Aisha Curry was the driver, not necessarily the brand. We see this a lot uh, for brands that run these these big collaborations is that the LTV on them isn't as good. So there's definitely some work to do to connect people to not should you not only should you own one necklace, but we want you to be this to be part of your you know sort of wardrobe staple and continue to add pieces over time. That'll that'll happen through great email work and all the things that the team will do. Um, um, but definitely room for for improvement in that area. Happens there, and I think this is one of the things. In some ways, the number one service we can offer an entrepreneur who comes to partner with us um, is that uh, when you when you get down, especially um, two of the original four founders were still working on the business um, when they came to Four Hundred Four Hundred. Um, when that happens, right, everybody's wearing a ton of hats. So the product designer is also doing operations because she's the closest to the product, so it kind of makes sense. Well, it turns out like the supply chain side of operations, what I mean, right? Like turns out she hates doing that stuff and she's a designer. She's a creative <laughs> and she's like so happy to uh, just get to help us with product design in the future and not to run supply chain stuff. She doesn't want to do supply chain stuff. Um, and so that ends up creating inefficiencies because people hate the job. It also means that you have less time to do the thing you're great at and you love. And so like one of the things that I think we offer to an entrepreneur a lot of times is that they can come to us and stop doing all the crap they hate, which there's a lot of it if you're running a business yourself and we will take some of that on because my supply chain guy is a freaking beast and we'll go and help take care of all that stuff um but you know what we aren't good at designing jewelry so it's perfect because then you can um then you can have that person come on and be a big part of that so um so yeah so we think i think that's another part of like the ltv thing is that when the more hats people wear the less they're able to get visibility to those kinds of things and then move the levers they need to that are going to be the biggest like value drivers in the business next it's just really hard to do it when you have to go respond to customer service and post social and run splash and you know all of those kinds of things that all pile up for for a, a small brand yeah no doubt about it and that and that's it, it just goes back to again who are we best suited to support and i think if you look across the entire um sort of library of four by 400 brands it's like Amber falls in that very similar model where she is a gifted at thinking about product and thinking she created the absolute most incredible skincare in the world. Right. And so suddenly we get to take off of her plate thinking about accounting and managing QuickBooks and thinking about production and demand planning and inventory and Facebook advertising and all those things. And they get to be into their sweet spot. And so you're bringing in, not only is it, we are 
bringing in our unique uh, skill set, we're actually amplifying the core skill of the entrepreneur. So they're actually getting and able to add more to the business than they were before because they're allowed to be the most of who they are. And I think that's a really important thing to add in. It's also really fun when that happens and you get to see people like just take on those kinds of parts of the business and not the other parts. Um, they, they enjoy it more. They like their lives more. It's less stressful, like all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. Okay. So let's, um, this is the podcast that was started with me talking about how bad of a hole I dug four or 400 into and, um, <laughs> how I was probably going to put us out of business pretty soon. Thanks. Thanks again. You and you and Aaron Orndorff, um, pushing me to do that. Appreciate that. Um, so, uh, so let's, let's, Let's do that a little bit. If in a year we come back around or six months or however long ago, like, oh my gosh, we are not finding it. Um, what went wrong? Like how, how come when you look at this business with the 4500 team, Taylor, um, if you project that out in a year, like how, how does this go badly for us? Yeah, I think the big variable for me is fashion and jewelry. Uh, have you guys have ever seen Andrew dress um, or ever seen his fashion sense? That feels like a big risk factor to me <laughs> is his opinion of what works in uh, women's accessories. So that that's that's one wild card I'll put out there. But seriously, like trend is a hard business. And when you don't have evergreen product, it also makes demand planning more challenging because you have to order stuff that is less likely to last forever. And you are at greater risk of over ordering on inventory for SKUs that turns out people don't actually want as much as you, you know, thought. And so there's, there's definitely versus like, you know, again, FC goods, it's like, we have a wallet. We know that people buy the trifold and the billfold. And if we order too many of them, eventually we'll sell out of them. If you order too many of a ring that nobody wants, you're in real trouble and you're sitting on inventory. Um, so I think there's definitely a challenge and risk for us to figure out what is the right rhythm of product release? How many SKUs should we have? How do we really drive demand? How do we actually determine initial demand on like the actual SKU sets? Like what's there? There's not a lot of data around which SKUs are best selling. Um, so I think that there's definitely some challenges to find the sweet spot of sort of hero products that can drive the acquisition engine initially to give us that chance to really grow the band. And we don't have an infinite amount of dollars, so we don't get a ton to test. Uh, so I think I, that could definitely be an area where it goes wrong. I totally agree with that. I think the trend thing is concerning to me, uh, for sure. Um, you may joke about it, but like this is just not an area where I, I have any expertise and so I can't be helpful in this. Um, one of the things I've learned about this in leadership, by the way, is just um, to not try to be really uh, instead to um, try to be helpful on the things I can be helpful with, which is sort of like thinking hard about, okay, if we create this product, is there enough margin in it for it to work if it actually works? Um, but if the creative person tells me that they think that it's beautiful and people will like it and I can test it quickly and inexpensively, then I'm not going to sit there and argue with them. I think generally speaking, right. I'm going to defer to their opinion. Um, and that's one of the helpful things about working with talented creative people is that if they can actually do that, they can do that. Um, so thankfully it doesn't lean on my ability to create jewelry, um, or to approve the right jewelry. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, one uh, other thing I'll add to it is just it, on the other end, if it works, we actually have no proof that we could produce any of this stuff at scale. Now, that tends to be an easier problem to solve because when you walk around with money and tell people a bunch of people want it, there's lots of people to make it. But at this point, we're trying to maintain this ethically sourced story or some element of it that we can really hold and be honest about who the brand is and their roots. We don't know exactly what that will look like, but there's going to be a scale production problem that I think as the team sort of locks in of how we actually produce at the volume that we need to with the stories that we want. 
so if you go to the about page for 31 bits right now, right, it's the story of these ladies in college who started this business and, um, and I'm not going to lie about that. Right. Like, so right, we're not going right. to keep telling the story the same exact way. If we significantly change those sorts of things, I'm also not going to, um, take that heart out of the brand. I think, I think both it does real good in the world, which is an end in itself to maintain that. So like, I believe in that as a mission. Uh, but even beyond that, as a marketer, I believe that that also creates for us uh, the possibility of differentiation in a really crowded space by uh, telling that story really honestly and in a way that's real. So that's a challenge, figuring out what does it mean? What is actually ethical fashion in 2020? And and how do you do that? Um, I think those ladies would, would tell you their views of this have really changed uh, over time as they've dealt with people in um, countries that are still developing and, and um, tried to figure out how to treat employees really, really well in those places in manufacturing relationships. All of that stuff changes over time. So, so it does matter to kind of maintain that in a way that's good. And then, like you said, to scale it once you get there. Um, if you're going to have that kind of product integrity, that can create scalability problems. Um, and you have to decide kind of whether you can um, be honest and integrous in your story uh, when you do that. And we're not going to compromise on that. So, right, um, right. so yeah. Um, I think another thing for me, just on the pure metric level, is uh, so since January 1, the average order value uh, is $60, basically, and the conversion rate is 1.44%. Uh, that, that conversion rate, as you have probably heard me say, I think I've said at some point in here, we, we generally, just looking at a lot of businesses, conversion rate and average order value have an um, inverse relationship, right? The more your AOV goes up, the more the conversion rate goes down. Uh, so that's sort of intuitive. Most it's a, it's a slower purchase decision to buy a more expensive thing. So conversion rate goes down, right? So um, at a $60 AOV, I would want to see probably at least two and a half percent. 1.44% is too low. Um, and it's fairly significantly too low. Now I have some theories about why that's the case. If I break this out by traffic channel, um, sometimes that is the problem. Sometimes a brand, for example, has a really low conversion rate because they get tons of blog traffic or something. And it's actually a good thing uh, that they have so much traffic that the conversion rate is low and it's just whatever. That's not the case here. Um, even the direct traffic is um, got some problems with conversion rate and some of those things. So I look at that and think that's something we can solve. I believe there's a few reasons for that. Um, but, uh, but to me, that's a concern that basically that that's a numerical indication that the demand, um, or the, or the value in the customer's eyes isn't as high as maybe it once was. Um, and so that we need to kind of clean up some things on the website end of things to, to maybe help bring that back up. Yeah, for sure. I, I think like you said right now, and, and to their credit, they were attempting to move beyond, just the jewelry story that they had lived in the paper bead uh, story. But right now I think there is this sort of ability to narrow in on what we're doing. And if you, even if you think about what you guys are so hot on in terms of the funnel strategy related to landers, um, I think when you start running traffic through um, a more specific sort of UX, you're going to improve the optionality problem. Like you're, you're not going to be dropping people on the homepage when we start running our ad funnels. You guys are going to do what you do really well, which is build a really sort of tightly message mapped funnel from ad to lander to product, especially once you figure out what products people really want. Um, and that's going to that's gonna help a ton with that. So where normally you wouldn't think of driving cold paid traffic as a mechanism for improving conversion rate. I think in some ways we actually might see some of that here where right now there's just so much going on that the, the UX is a little confusing, especially if you came in on a, a story 
there's just hard to say what story you came in on or where it came from at this point um, in terms of the traffic. There's a lot of legacy PR and different things that that don't always have a good sense of continuity now. And I think we're going to solve that once we get to sort of really designing the funnel. Another thing I see a lot of on the traffic note and the conversion rate note, when um, when I see brands that um, when I see brands that are uh, run by people who have too much to do. One of the first things to go is really good email programs because it's so labor intensive on the front end to set up good automated flows and those sorts of things. Um, so I would say another thing here is there's not enough email traffic and that will always bring your conversion rate down because email traffic is really high converting. So if you ha- if you take that out of the total pie of traffic, it's a problem. And uh, this is just another like little word of advice. Figure out some kind of a rhythm to generate new email every week, whether it's campaigns, even if it's not the best. There's an 80-20 principle with email big time where um, 80% of the value comes in 20% of the work with email for sure. You don't have to have the greatest automated flows in the world to get value out of your email list um, if you just follow some kind of basic principles. And if you can get into a rhythm of consistently producing and creating ways and reasons to send your customers good quality email. Um, so that's that's another thing I look at and just go like, oh, we have a solve for that. We have process around email builds. Uh, we, we, are, we currently do something where in the early stage of a brand, we will build six emails a week and we'll split it between automations and campaigns. And just you give you do that for three months and you will have significant automations built out for every possible kind of customer. And that, I think, really helps things a lot. It, it generates a lot of value. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then those are all the things, the post, the, the, the sign up flows, the post purchase flows, all the things that your team will get in there and start immediately like putting in place. And again, this just goes back to like how much of the juice is squeezed from the fruit when it comes to us. Like if all of those things are dialed and someone's like, here's my brand, it's struggling. I've done everything tactically perfect. You're like, well, I actually don't like, it's not really that we think that we are so much better than everybody else. It's that we have a set of principles about what it looks like to develop and run a great e-commerce brand that when combined with great product and authentic story really has the opportunity to unlock growth. And that's what we've seen happen time and time again for the four by 400 brands. And we think that, you know, Callie and Jesse are bringing all of the pieces that we need of an incredible brand and that we can hand to the team at four by 400 and they can really, really turn it into a rocket ship and all the pieces that we can't bring. And that's the, that's exactly. The awesome thing. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. Cool. Okay. Um, well, we can wrap this, uh, Taylor, any other big thoughts sort of about, um, about this, the way this deal came together, anything else, but your hopes for this, anything that you just kind of want to tag on the end of this conversation um, that you'd want people, um, to hear about sort of how we think about bringing a brand into our ecosystem. Yeah. What, so I, and I think it'll be cool when you talk to Callie and Jesse, I would really encourage you, you all, if you've listened to this episode to listen to that one, because I think that their point of view is really important. And the reality is, is that these things aren't simple. They're emotional. This is 10 years of their life that is poured into this. And the amount of trust that frankly goes to a group of strangers like us to, to care about giving us the chance to sort of continue on their story and really their legacy in some ways it, is really critical. And it, and it wasn't simple. Like Andrew and I, I put out a tweet. I don't even know, like maybe 40 days ago. It was a picture of Reggie Miller as a little tease. And it was after we had all gone to dinner. Um, and it was me and Andrew and Callie and Jesse and Callie's husband, I think. Um, and we were celebrating the end of it. And the reality was there was a long road to get through to the, to that process that, that happens. And so, um, deals, 
take time, they take thought and they involve emotion, especially with businesses where people have poured their heart and soul into it. And, um, so that's just a thing I continue to learn is that part of our primary job. And you even hear us talking about it a lot is to give the entrepreneur to develop trust with the founder that we are going to do right by what they have done. Um, and that we represent an opportunity for them to go to a place that they haven't been yet, uh, with us. And that's what we're here to do in four by 400. Like ultimately you, you guys are part of an ecosystem that exists to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. And the story of the founders experience matters to us, even after they've signed the contract, like their experience of how they feel like four by 400 cared for them matters to us. Uh, and and it, it's just, we just look forward to being able to sort of celebrate all of that stuff together. It matters a lot to us. Um, yeah. Because, because it is so, uh, just totally human at the end of the day. Like you said, there's, yep. there's, there's people here and there's all kinds of things to work out that are just completely and totally human. And at the end of the day, like one of the, there is no amount of legal carefulness you can do yeah. that is going to really protect you. If the partner isn't a good partner, like at the end of the day, like if somebody wants to screw you, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the best lawyers in the world can make that harder for them to do, but like it's, it's not the, per, the, the details of a contract aren't going to be the thing that determines that what's going to be determined is who you partner with. And so, um, we, we take that really seriously. There's sort of a responsibility that comes with, uh, with that. And so, yeah, I, you know, I don't have anything written into our contract that says we have to manufacture in a certain place to respect their brand story, but we're going to like, it's just, the point is like this, this is what's core to the humans involved. And, um, and so that's just going to be a constraint we're going to work with. And if we can't do it that way, then we'll say good luck. And, and maybe there's a new partner you can find because that's just the reality of what we have to do, um, to respect the journey that's been there so far and to really want to celebrate in the future. So yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I'm excited for you guys. Now, now the work all falls in your plate. We've set it up, <laughs> but basically it's a can't miss opportunity. And if we miss, it's basically because it's my fault. Andrew's failed, yeah. Andrew's failed yeah. fashion sense and his inability to execute against yeah, what was a perfect opportunity. I'm so Andrew, I think the, we pressure's on and, uh, I'm my job's done here. Looking forward to the future uh, e-commerce playbook episodes of me talking about how bad it's going, uh, and this opportunity <laughs> because I screwed up because, uh, yeah, exactly. I know that I will be asked to talk about that if it happens. Um, cool. Um, that's, that's it for this time. Uh, just, uh, really appreciate you guys again, joining with us in this journey. I was sort of shocked when I first tweeted, um, just a little random tweet on a Friday night saying this deal was closed and saw all these people just saying, congratulations. I, I didn't even say what the brand was yet, but just lots of just sort of excitement. As I have said a million times on here, DTC Twitter is one of the coolest places in the world. So, um, as always, uh, I will say it again. I want to hear your thoughts on this. One thing that would be great for you to do is uh, just go to 31bits.com, poke around and just fire away all the things that you think we should do. Uh, we want to hear you just tear it down, tell, tell, tell us um, what you think we could do with the brand and, and your ideas. Um, uh, at Andrew J. Ferris for me, at Taylor Holiday. Are you just That's straight it. up? Is there a different Taylor Holiday? Are you Taylor Holiday 26 or something like that? Come on. Don't act like you don't know. <laughs> you've, got, you, you've got push notifications for all my tweets. <laughs> no. I, what I'd really appreciate, too, is if you if you do have a Twitter following out there and you're listening to this, make sure to like retweet my stuff because I'm a couple thousand followers behind Taylor now. Yeah, yeah. And you're pretty prolific well, and, these days So in terms of just yeah. your volume of output. So 
Uh, well, I found yeah. I found like sort of like a, a, a thirst trap. What I've learned for people is that no one actually wants to hear from me. The way to get engagement is ask them to tell me something. And then that's the key to Twitter. It's just like everybody's there to give their opinion. If you ask for it, boom, lots of engagement. So <laughs> Taylor that, is 36 learned, years old and just realizing that people want to not hear him talk. So I literally thought that's what Twitter existed for. Was for the, <laughs> They were all there to hear from me. It turns out I was completely wrong. Who knew? Completely wrong. Yeah, <laughs> there might be some other self-reflection involved there for uh, for your perspective on life. Oh, All right, uh, that's it. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Email me at uh, podcast at four by four hundred dot com. It's podcast at four x four hundred dot com. Would love to hear your thoughts, rate, review, all that kind of stuff. Again, get in the Twitter conversation with me, Taylor, and the rest of the gang. Thanks for listening, and uh, we will be back soon later this week with uh, Callie and Jesse from Thirty One Bits to tell the rest of the story. Thanks. <laughs>